This is Wading Deep, a podcast that explores the connection between environmental justice and race. Racism pollutes our people and land. Resilience, our strength of spirit and hand. Resurrection, our healing, made whole we stand. I'm your host, the Reverend Jamon Taylor, rector at St. Ambrose Episcopal Church, Raleigh, North Carolina, a congregation with a long history of challenging environmental racism. I am honored to welcome Amin Davis, who is Partners for Environmental Justice, PEJ board member. Welcome, Amin. Thanks, Reverend Taylor. Uh, it's good to be speaking with you, and I appreciate you uh, um, reaching out to me. I want to talk a little bit about um, development. Uh, you mentioned during the last segment that there are many development models. Um, all development uh, does not have to produce or be a catalyst for gentrification. Uh, you spoke about Southeast Raleigh Promise revitalization through this revitalization without displacement. You spoke about equitable development. I know a, a few months ago, you and I had a couple of email exchanges on crime prevention through environmental design called SEPTED, um, how the city of Raleigh is sinking millions of dollars into SEPTED as a way of preventing crime. I think that's a bad idea. Curious your thoughts on that. But can you speak about more about these development models um, and equitable development? Yeah, uh, development as it relates to Raleigh, right? Because they're different, you know, depending yeah, as it relates on to Raleigh. Yep. Sure. Yeah. Because, you know, depending on where you are, uh, urban, suburban, rural, it's it's different. And there's still environmental justices and injustices in all of those those spaces. But as it relates to um, Raleigh, you know, again, there's lots of folks are moving to this area. Um, Raleigh has been in the triangle area in general has been one of the um you know, designated as one of the best places to live and move to for, for years and years, even 20 years ago when I moved to this area, 20, 25 years. So, um, but also there's um, there's been a move, particularly with the younger single professionals who are coming into the um, uh, workforce that, um, and that the, essentially the more mobile, the ones who are, um, more uh, more well educated and have had better opportunities, they're desiring to live in urban areas. And this is not just going on in the Raleigh area, but it's going on in other areas throughout the country. So um, with that, um, the, there's there's this pressure to um, uh, to to develop in a way that's going to attract, more upper, what we call in our society, more upwardly mobile people to um, uh, to these downtown urban metropolitan areas. And it's interesting when you look at the history of redlining in our communities, it seems like gentrification is almost like reverse redlining or it's one in the same. It's like gentrification seems to be the um, the newer the newer, I guess, approach 
to developing areas, which also impacts um, communities of color and lower income communities. Historically, of course, redlining was where um, communities of color were um, essentially uh, uh, funds and uh, resources were divested or were advised not to be put into these areas. And there were these red lines that were put on these historic maps that show these areas. So these were areas of disinvestment where predominantly African-Americans lived. Fast forward to today, you have gentrification, which is now with there's with this development boom, we want, you know, we're uh, these areas because they were, they're relatively less, um, they're relatively cheaper as far as land acquisition. So a developer can come in, um, purchase um, properties, put up these more expensive um, homes and business that, that are tied to businesses that are um, more uh, upscale that um, the, you know, a person who uh, does not have the financial means cannot um, shop at or do business at. So long story short, with the housing boom coupled with building, developing um, uh, communities and, and businesses that cater to more economically privileged people, the property values uh, in these former under-resourced areas go up. The people that used to live there are driven out and the people who can afford these areas come in. So that's what, you know, that pattern is, um, playing itself out in Southeast Raleigh and other parts of Raleigh and in other metropolitan areas. And um, it's, it's just ironic how, um, you know, different approaches and patterns lead to the same outcome, which is the displacement of communities of color, um, not just their displacement, but also the displacement of their culture, also the displacement of their contributions are lost and um it it's it's just challenging and frustrating to see that pattern play out um you know in different parts of the country but particularly you're seeing it play out in um raleigh and in southeast raleigh i appreciate your framing this around intention and that um development as we see it in raleigh and in many urban areas around the united states it is slanted or targeted toward upperly mobile people to place people uh, in the city center or in close proximity with uh, restaurants and, and entertainment. And the development is not designed for the people who currently live there. Um, those folk are not upwardly mobile people. Um, and so one of the benefits of equitable development, as you said earlier, is that you can revitalize without displacing and the Southeast Raleigh Y, the elementary school there, um, the affordable housing Beacon Hill. That's an example of revitalizing without displacing. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it also, um, what that, that um that approach needs to be intentional right because it's not it's not just going to happen um you know I've, i had an opportunity to speak with the um 
executive director of the Southeast Raleigh YMCA a couple of years ago, and to kind of get the background of how this place came to be, you know, and it, it didn't just happen, you know, it took many years of advocacy, difficult conversations and fundraising to, to make that happen. So there's a, there's a huge story in how the beacon, um, the beacon site came to be, but uh, again, it's not going to happen if it's not advocated for, it's not going to happen if the difficult conversations aren't had. And it obviously takes um, financial resources to make something like that happen. Now, that's not to say that there's, you know, that that model can be duplicated in every square inch of Raleigh. But some of those same principles of equitable development where, um, you know, it's it's an approach. Equitable development is a an approach to essentially, um, in my mind, reversing past environmental injustices, um, like you said, um, for the goal of meeting the needs of the of underserved communities um, and that these policies and programs need to, um, you know, be intentional in serving that goal, because a lot of the current policies, the, the current development framework, the way plans are reviewed, even the way with with stormwater, for instance, that is a huge problem in Walnut Creek. It's not. um there, there, there's the, these issues are not intentionally addressed unless they're strongly advocated for. No, you, you're absolutely right. Um, I mentioned at the top of the, the segment about SEPTED, which is crime prevention through environmental design. You're obviously an environmental expert. I'm wondering if you have any uh, opinion or comment on SEPTED. Um, to be honest with you, I'd probably I have not really dug into that issue. If you gave me some context in terms of what the environmental design that's being proposed, I could probably give you some input um, on on that from from my perspective. Can you kind of give me kind of the the boil down the core of this approach? Yeah, part of the approach is that crime, you can prevent crime through environmental design. Um more visible spaces, more open spaces, um, more lighting, um, better line of sight for police professionals. Um, in my read of this, of course, I'm not an environmentalist. In my read of it, it is taking away, it, it is actually weaponizing the environment um, in places of high crime. Um, which by and large tend to be black and brown communities. Um, and there are a number of reasons for that. Um, jobs, redlining, um, affordability. And so to take a park, let's say we would take uh, the Walnut Creek Wetland Park, uh, to take Walnut Creek Park um, or any park, Chavis Park, and construct it in such a way that there is visibility at all angles in my mind means that you have little tree coverage canopy. So that's, that's, that's going to increase your, your heat index, which is already high in, in black and Brown communities. It's going to decrease uh, the beauty of the place because you do not have shrubs and as many flowers because you need to be able to see um, and you're going to have more, um, artificial lighting. So tall light poles that are 
um, casting light in the park, uh, you know, all hours of the night. So that aids in light pollution, which means you now cannot see the canopy of the sky. Again, this is my reading of the material. Um, and what's concerning to me is that the city of Raleigh, if you look at their strategic plan for, I think it's either 2024 or 2025, this was actually listed as the number one tool to increase public safety for the city of Raleigh, um, which I, I just find unbelievable. So again, there are many opinions on SEPTED, but you just heard my opinion on it. Yeah. Um, well, I'd say based on some of the elements that you, um, you mentioned, um, yeah, there are definitely some adverse, even environmental impacts. I deal with this in my day job being a grant manager where we fund projects. A lot of the projects we fund are in parks throughout the state. And there, you know, um, certain local governments that want their park to look very well manicured, right? And um, that that can be well and good in, in some ways, but it does take away the environmental benefits that um, like you mentioned, the, the vegetation, you know, it helps with the, um, to help mediate the air quality, you know, when you have trees and shrubs pumping out oxygen instead of concrete that's holding in heat during the summer and releasing it at night and keeping these urban areas more, uh, the temperatures, uh, a lot higher. You also have less environmental resilience, the less vegetation you have. So when these storms come that are more becoming more frequent, and more intense because of, um, uh, you know, our climate is changing, then um, that that also would, would not, um, you, you know, you're kind of taking away the environmental resiliency of these spaces, but also because uh, these spaces, because of their built-in environmental resiliency, they're going to help the people that live there to be more resilient against um, some of these uh, more intense and frequent storms. Um, so when the natural environment is manicured for um, human purposes, per se, um, it, it can it can honestly do um, more harm than good and taking away the benefits that um, the environmental elements in these spaces provide. You know, they don't just provide environmental benefits, they can provide social benefits for like you said, you know, um, when you have more vegetation, you can have more gathering spaces for people and it can be um, the temperatures can be cooler there. Um, you talk about the economic benefits. Um, nature provides us economic benefits when you have less flooding or you have less damage because of the environmental resiliency that is built into these natural places. And you try to reduce that, then um, you're going to you 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 can incur more economic um, costs due to cleanups, due to flooding, due to other aspects. And just the public and mental health aspects that these natural spaces can provide. Um, you know, I would say a, a golf course, if you're into golf, no, no hatred towards the golfers, but a golf course, I mean, it's nice, but it's very well manicured um, versus a nice park that has greenways and trails and, and uh, more natural areas that are less manicured, um, you know, can probably provide more benefits and just an enjoyment to um, a person, particularly in the urban, you know, in, in urban spaces where 
um, uh, green spaces are um, a very important components of health and wellness. Um, as I'm sure co- we know that COVID brought that to light in terms of um, when people were, um, uh, you know, when our houses, the, the, these natural spaces became um, refuges to to deal with COVID and to deal with isolation. And so um, I guess what I would, in, in, in summary, I would um, echo some of the concerns you raised in terms of this approach to policing and crime in crime. Yeah, you know, you spoke about golf courses as someone who sits on SMAC and I'm chair of SMAC, Stormwater uh, Management Advisory Commission. When we look at the role of golf courses in water runoff, yes, a golf course is green and grass, but it's designed in a way to make the ball move quickly. And so it allows water to move quickly. So it almost acts like um, an impervious surface uh, because in the rain event, um, water runs off a golf course um, more quickly than in a, in a natural area. Um, so even as you talked about, you know, golf courses, yes, it's green space, but you can't treat it um, as green space only because of how it's designed. Right. And additionally, there are a lot more uh, chemicals um, as far as herbicides that are used in on golf courses. So the water quality will be um, much poorer. Um, it'll add nutrients into the streams, which make their way into the larger rivers. And um, that's one of the reasons why the um, state has put into effect these nutrient management strategies. The new, the new um, management strategy that includes buffer rules and, and, and others throughout the state are put in place to address um, the fact that these excess nutrients are put into the water quality and people will say, well, why is that an issue? Well, that's an issue. For instance, um, Falls Lake, that's where the city of Raleigh gets its water from. Um, they have a nutrient management strategy in place to address the um, fact that Falls Lake and Jordan Lake as well um, uh, have excess nutrients in them. And those nutrients essentially allow for the growth of excess algae, which essentially when the algae die, the um, uh, the oxygen is taken out of the water. So that's where you lead, you can, um, you can get uh, fish kills and other things, um, but also it costs more money to treat dirty water. Um, so um, that's just, that's, that's another example, like you said, of um, the environmental design of certain places that is, um, uh, may not be beneficial to the sur- sur- surrounding air and water quality. Thank you so much, Amin. The Wading Deep podcast comes to you from a place we affectionately call the Bros. St. Ambrose Episcopal Church, Raleigh, North Carolina. Follow us on Facebook, YouTube, The Bros NC on Twitter, and The Bros 1868 on Instagram. I am your host, the Reverend Jermond Taylor. Gods are going to trouble the water of environmental racism, resurrecting a river of life clear as crystal. Shalom. Salam. Peace.